Thanks for leading us, Desiree. If you'd like to follow along today and you have a way to access the scriptures somehow, we will be in Acts chapter 11. We were in Acts chapter 10 and then the first half of 11 last week. Um, We will wrap up chapter 11 today. And at the very, very end of of, uh, my little message this morning, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know if there's a way for you to open up two tabs on your device or uh, put a bookmark in Ephesians 2 or something like that, but those will be our two primary texts today. Uh, I'd like to begin by reading Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. That's our story this morning. That's going to drive our conversation. On the surface, a pretty, um, maybe not as eventful passage as the ones that we've been used to over the last couple of weeks in Acts. On the surface, this seems like just kind of a very simple account of a few things that happened. There's not really a profound story. There's no visions in this one. There's no... uh, trips to the desert to find someone. Um, But there's one sentence in particular we're going to lift out of here, and I think we'll find some great meaning in the implications of it. So, allow me to read here, Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, this would be in Acts chapter 8, you may recall, Um, Those that were scattered traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, people from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of that reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I'm going to keep reading, but that's our sentence this morning. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this actually happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, 
decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by the way of Barnabas and Saul. Little historical account, but an exciting sentence that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians at Antioch. Our passage here gives us insight into the fruit of the events that began in Acts chapter 8, which was a persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This persecution resulted in a scattering, which created conditions for the church to grow into the inclusive, diverse, welcoming community that God destined for it to be. Hear that phrasing, the persecution resulted in a scattering, and the scattering created a condition for growth. That's how it went down. They couldn't be all together. They left, and it was in leaving that the church grew. We've discussed this over the last few weeks through the obedience of Philip, an Ethiopian government official who was a sexual minority came to know the love of God. God found Saul, who was the chief church persecutor through Ananias. An angel spoke to Cornelius. An angel spoke to Peter. And they met, and their meeting squashed any remaining legitimacy to practice favoritism. And finally because of the obedience of some nameless disciples from Cyprus, the good news of God's love for all had finally reached a primarily non-Jewish audience and in large scale in Antioch. The city of Antioch is highlighted with particular importance in this passage as not only a place where the Greeks were reached with the gospel, but where, as we've already discussed, the disciples were first called Christians. It's the word Christian that we hold to pretty strongly. This was not a word in Jesus' time, and this was not a word, of course, up until this exact moment. And although the word Christian may hold several different definitions and connotations all at once today, When this word was first assigned, it was under one simple translation, and it was those belonging to Christ or those Christ folk. It would be up to the individual Antioch resident to determine if Christian was an insult (laughs) or if it was a compliment or if it was simply a statement of fact, but regardless... It was an assigned nickname given to those who very clearly, because of the nature of their lives, belonged to Christ. It is a profound thing to realize that the title Christian was not given through a self-assignment but it was one that was given by those who were not at the time Christians themselves. 
In fact, that reality is one that should make all Jesus followers pause and contemplate. Originally, Jesus followers did not think of the term Christian. And Jesus followers did not assign it to other Jesus followers. Pastors and leaders of churches did not call those who gathered in their churches Christians. Jesus did not call his followers Christians. (laughs) It was the people who did not yet identify with the person of Christ themselves who were able to identify those who were with Christ. I challenge us all to ask ourselves and to sit with the following question. What would a life need to look like, sound like, and act like in order to be identified as Christian by someone who is not yet a Christian themselves? Because that's what's happening in Acts chapter 11. What would my life, what would our lives need to look like and sound like and act like in order for someone who isn't a Christian to look at us and say, they are with Jesus? Would that not be the truest indicator of who Christians really are? Here's an example. I can refer to myself as a chef, and when people mispronounce my name, they often say chef instead of Seth. And in fact, I could get my friends to refer to me as a chef as well. But does that make me a chef? Ask Ty. It turns out that the fact that I can't actually cook anything worth eating speaks for itself. So then, how would I find the chefs? I would ask people who don't call themselves chefs, who makes the best food that you've ever had? And they would tell me, and it would eventually lead me to chefs, Not the people who call themselves that, but the people who can just make good food. During the time of which the scriptural account was written about the church in the city of Antioch, who were the Christians? Well, they weren't the ones who called themselves Christians because they didn't think of that word. So the Christians were the ones who clearly had a graceful disposition, graceful disposition towards their own household and their neighbors. They were the ones who very obviously did not have their primary allegiance assigned to a political system. If they were, they would quite literally be called Caesar-ians, that is, 
those people who belong to Caesar. They were generous with their resources. They operated with a countercultural level of trust with those that they bought from and sold to. These were the Christians. And at that time, they were being identified by those who could not fathom this way of life unless they actually saw someone else do it for real in front of their own eyes. So who are the Christians today? How are they to be identified? What should their traits be? What should a life look like that belongs to Christ, a Christ-ian? So let's ask ourselves a series of questions that get harder on purpose. Who would call us a Christian today? Would other Christians? Hopefully. Would our own family members? Maybe. Would our neighbors? I don't know. Would our co-workers? Would Republicans? Would Democrats? Would people with all shades of skin? Would the rich? Would the poor? Would the cashier? Would the customer service representative over the phone? Would my Facebook friends? Would people who practice other religions or even no religion at all call us Christian? And it's that last part that is really the bar. That's the bar. That is the biblical, scriptural comparison. Would people who don't practice Christianity call us Christians? Finally, who makes one a Christian? Who gets to decide? It's not me. It's actually not you. The answer to this is found in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and that's how we're going to close things out before we gather around the communion table, because this, this chapter in Ephesians, written by Saul, who would eventually be known as Paul, written by someone who was as dead as they could be while still being alive. If you can order murders at the point of a finger, you are absolutely dead inside. And Paul was one of those people at one time, eventually found by Christ. So these are his words, the person who went through that type of conversion. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading for about five minutes. As for you, as for us, we were once dead in our transgressions and sins, in which we used to live when we followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. 
like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. We've heard that one before. God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavens, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works. It is not by the self-assessment of a title. It is not by the assessment of a title of the person in the pew across the room from you. It is a gift from God, so no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formally, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God. But now, in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to us who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers." But you, us, we, are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Who makes people Christians? It's Jesus. And it's not by good works, even though we're called to do those. 
called to love our neighbor. But who makes Christians Christians? I'll tell you what. It's not because you're here. This is a church that gathers around and is compelled by Jesus Christ, and it is compelled by the religion that is known as Christianity. But being in this room doesn't make you a Christian. I'm not saying that there's a single person that's ever been in this room who isn't a Christian, but I'm saying it's not because you're in this room. And if I walked up to you and said, you are just such a great Christian example, as a pastor, that doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus makes us one with him. Jesus makes us Christ folk. Jesus makes it so that we can belong to Christ. So then what are we, are, what are we to do? Now that the pressure is off, what do we do? I said this the other day, I had an opportunity to, to speak to a, just a group of friends, and, and we got to the point in the conversation where they said, man, the good news really makes it sound like the pressure's off. And an initial instinct there, I really want to celebrate that. Why? Because Jesus himself says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so this isn't supposed to be some miserable existence. So yeah, the pressure's off. But could I present to us all that there's just now a different kind of pressure? And it redirects itself in a different way. The pressure is not on you for you to earn your salvation. But could I say that the pressure is on us to love our neighbors as ourselves? This is how, this is how God has challenged our household, Ty and I and Rosie now, she doesn't even know the challenge is coming her way. We have taken it upon ourselves to ask, not really ask the question, but make the statement. We are going to behave as if no one else is going to love our neighbor except maybe us. That's, that's how we have to approach the world is that what if there's not another human being on the planet that has extended any kind of loving action whatsoever to that Walmart cashier that has the worst job right now on planet Earth? <laughs> That's not true at all, but a really not fun job. Probably overworked, exhausted, wearing a mask, getting yelled at by people who are stressed out themselves for their own valid reasons. But you are standing there, and you're face-to-face -face with them, and your credit card's not working, or you have to fumble around for your checkbook, or get some cash, or your short change, or they're saying the price that it scanned is up was not the price that it was over here. And in that moment, you have an opportunity. 
you might be the only person who is able to extend grace and forgiveness and love in that person's eight and a half hour shift with a 15 minute lunch, what are we gonna do? So the pressure's off, but the pressure is totally on. (laughs) The pressure's totally on to be the salt of the earth. To be the light of the world. I want to say, because I believe this to be true, that social media, news outlets, don't make it their mission to be the light. Can I say that? It is not any news channel, newspaper, radio program, whatever. It is not their mission statement, unless it's a Christian one, to be the light of the world. So who's it going to be? Because that's the thing. That's what Jesus is trying to say in the Sermon on the Mount is when he first speaks those words. He said, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. What, what he's doing is two things at once. He's saying, you've got, a, you've got so much purpose. You have so much to offer. You might think that you don't, but you've got so much to give. But then you've got to do it in order for it to be realized on this planet. Is that if, if you're not the salt of the earth, then who's it going to be? And if you're not the light of the world, then who's it going to be? So in that moment, Jesus is bringing purpose into all of our lives. He's taking the pressure off, but he's putting the pressure on. So, Ephesians chapter 2, I would really encourage you to meditate on the, that passage this week. There's, and, and through the lens of who writes those words, right? Through the lens of the one who was the chief enemy to the church, who had no business being welcomed into the kingdom of the person that he was persecuting now gets welcomed in, his life is transformed, and it accounts for like 20% of our New Testament. (laughs) He not only came to Christ, but he became part of our story. He became part of our shaping. And so Ephesians 2, the person who wrote it, big deal.